Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. New York City, right? The hottest spot in the world. The hottest place to, for house music at one time. Disco and all that. Well, this each and every week we go and look for some of our greats that came out of New York and took the sound around the world. And this man right now who I'm going to bring up is no small character. He is a huge force has done so many things for so many people. He's broken records. He's helped make a lot of careers happen. It's incredible the things that he has been involved in. He started from college level radio, took that sound around the world, played it more places than I can name, and every continent has hosted him. Okay? He has a great name. Those that know his name, it goes by one name. Okay, I'm going to say the name in a second. And also as well, he has a fantastic record label. He's been involved with some great records. He's had some humongous hits, all the great stuff. And he's still, to this day, still giving and still pushing the house sound because he loves it to death, like we all do. He loves house music, loves it, loves it, loves it. I want to welcome to the show, Noah, the DJ Disciple. Yo, Disciple, what's up, brother? How are you, baby? Welcome, welcome. And I want to say hello to everybody from the UK and around the world. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. First of all, before we even get to first question, I've been asking everybody, how are you holding up with? Well, um, I've been doing really good in a bad time. Um, I play the drums in my church. And a lot of times I've been playing for a lot of funerals. Like people have been passing away. Um, so I've been doing my part to contribute to people who have been suffering through the virus. Um, and so there was a lot of um, death within my, my community. And I was able to be like put together video um, legacy montages for them to make sure that, you know, their family recognizes and celebrate them. So I've been doing that. Um, and I'm enjoying being a full-time dad. It's the best thing in the world to uh, partner with the schools, um, get a stronger bond with my daughter, um, and, and, and be able to do, you know, the remote time that I've been doing. I now am a free man because now she's back in school, but, uh, she's been taking a state test and she studied so hard for it. And then in the end they said, well, it's optional. You don't have to take it. And I was like, Oh, what do you mean? So, but I'm grateful to have been gone through that with her. Um, and obviously I'm putting out, but I've never put out. Let me ask you something. Um, we went to school a long time ago. I'm going to ask you as a father now question. The way they're teaching the kids now, are you able to grasp it? Because they've changed the, the way things go now. Are you, are you able to follow? The new math, the new math is not. But I think that what I did was, if I didn't know a lot of the things uh, from the new math, you know, you could you can go on and register. Like I would go to Zuzu Bomb and... Yet they would have online tutoring for my daughter. And then obviously, you know, the family always kept a lot of books around, history books or whatever. So I made sure that she was staying on path with her reading level. Um, the most important thing is the partnerships with the schools. Um, and depending on what schools you go to, I came up from a different era. But she's coming up in an era wherein um, she can be socially in touch with kids remotely. Um and sometimes she gets in trouble for it because I'm not really a, a fan of Roblox and TikTok. And so you got to limit that time 
and make sure that that doesn't, you know, be a distraction because distraction is sure. a purpose, as we all know, right? Yes. So that's how that I, I know, I know. That's why I asked you because they changed that math. They ch- when I saw my daughter come home with that math book many years ago, I was like, "That's not what they taught us." And then exactly. you got to answer everything as to why you got that answer. It's like easy. It's twenty two. Why do I need to tell you why? You know, it's like you got to explain. You got to write it all out. I'm like, oh. God. But I'm grateful for the bond and the experience, and it's something that she'll never forget because we didn't go a lot of places, right? And the only thing that said Paul here is that I did not socially distance from the refrigerator, which is why you have me shot up from the chest up. And this is the reason why I'm not showing my whole body. You're not going to see a full screen. I do. Disciple today. I'm still working on it for a little, you know, I'm a little pregnant for a little while, but I'm listening. I'm like, I'm going to Wait a second. Will Smith did a fabulous photo with his shedded body. He showed his stomach, Will Smith. He said, I've been working to that refrigerator. He yeah, looks happy. Gotta, gotta get away. I got a social distance from the bro. Anyway. Did you put a lock on it? Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, you know, because the Knicks are hot right now. You know, I know. The Knicks games start reaching for the popcorn and you gotta reach for that, you know. I got my little water bottle. Hurry, sick. Meet you the popcorn. Go get your popcorn. Go get your wine. Go get your beer. Because this story is going to get real in a second. But hurry up and get it. Go get it while we're having our middle talk. Because when he gets rolling, you're not going to be ready for what's coming. I got a show and tell today. It's unreal. (laughs) All right, disciple. Let's go to the pictures and get you ready. Here we go. First, as I always ask everyone the same thing is. Let's start right from the tippy, tippy, tippity, tippity bottom. We'll work our way to the top. All right? From Jump Street. When you were a young, young kid, how does music find you? I was born to it. Because I had, it was five brothers, right? Five of us. Sherman, Stanley, Diary, Layton, and then I was born. And so my father, William Banks, invested into music for us because he didn't get to realize his own dream. And he married my mom. And at the time, um, we were living, uh, we moved, he had, he had moved to Farragut Projects, which is Farragut Housing. It's um, located on, in the, you know, it's located in the east of the Brooklyn Heights, in the west of Fort Greene, south of, you know, that area called down under the Manhattan Bridge. We know that uh, down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass, we know there's um, Dumbo. So the housing project was completed in 1951 when he moved in. And at that time, the rent was only like $8 a month, right? So so musically, um, I think that Stanley had the first success because um, when I was coming up at two years old, and you could see photos of you know me as a baby, um, he had already been in the New York High School Orchestra and the chorus, like the, um, the Philharmonic Hall. And it was a big deal back then. And not to be outdoed, my, my, my other brother, because it was always Stanley and Larry that was really deeply entrenched, Larry, he would go to Dr. White Community Center, which is a center across the street, and he would get into James Brown split contest. They would have a contest with splits. And so um, at a very young age, um, Stanley would get together with um, Stevie, um, Steve Standard. People know him today as Straith, the guy that made Set It Off. So his father, Stevie's father, 
had a, a group called Mr. Stevie and the Young Ones. And so Strafe and like Stevie and Rodney Newell would play guitar and Stanley would play the bass and mm -hmm. Steve Gordon would play the drums and they would play in front of the buildings. Now buildings were 234, 177, 202, 190, and 192. And so Stanley would play like all of the Brooklyn bar scene. And he had really gotten hot what he was doing. Um, at that time, he was um, playing also football. He, he would play outside games in Farragut. And one of the people that he was playing games with was Grandmaster Flowers, Jonathan Flowers. Um, at the time, the Flowers family lived on the same floor as my family on the 10th floor. But we moved downstairs. And mm -hmm. Larry wasn't a fan of, of Jonathan Flowers because when Larry was eight years old, he Flowers dropped him on his head. So he never really forgave him for that. And he was really upset about it. But Grandmaster Flowers was the first experience of the, 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 the mobile DJ, right? And so he got known doing the Reese Beach events, doing the Eastern uh, Parkway Caribbean Parade. And, and Flowers, Grandmaster Flowers, he was known as Flowers and Dice originally for graffiti. He ain't the important groundwork for the like the DJ mobile DJ movement. You know, he was a mobile DJ pioneer, right? And so you got this group of DJs that start coming out. And right. that group of DJs was like Flowers, Maboya, Plummer, Pete DJ Jones. And he was a like he was the pre-discotech dance hall DJ before East Disco was in your thing. Okay. So they would do events like at the zoo on Atlantic and Notion. Um, you had like different crews like the Infinity Machine, um, Charisma Sounds, the Disco Twins, you know, um, you know, you had Stevie D, you know, and so all a lot of these events was promoted by, you know, M. Morton Hall, right? You would go to Club Mahogany, you know, um, they would do these events. I would you you can even see it online now, like back in 1975, you know, um Elmo the Magic Christian did a, 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 a party at the Hotel St. George, which was in Dumbo, which wasn't so far from me back in 1975. And he had back then BT Express, the Joneses, um, all these different people. Most of the time, a lot of people from Farragut, and then you had a community next to me called Fort Greene, Bedstar, they would all call, come down to this place called COCP, Community Organization Central Party. I think it's called Party. But he would do those venues and Club Ibadan, which was 243. And the way his system was set up, he would have like thorn turntables, right? And so, you know, people back then, they were like into like um, Jimmy Castor and a bunch, Sai May, you know, uh, Mandrill 8 High and Ohio Players, right? And so, you know, um, the, the, the Flowers family and our family really, really got along and we were connected. And then, obviously, with Strafe, my mother was a fan of Strafe because, you know, he was inspired by Flowers, but he also was a DJ. He DJed at, like, Shady Rest Park, which is a park across the street from me, or 111 Park. And so, after that, you know, um, we have Kenny Carpenter. Now, Kenny Carpenter knew me when I was in draws, okay? And he knew me when I was a little baby. Um, and he came up with my brother Larry, you know what I'm saying? So... Me, him, Kenny Carpenter, um, and then you had Rusty Taylor with the Taylor family. These were all family members, people that was community 
but they were also involved in the family. Now, as a side note, my oldest brother, Shimon, um, he was into music early, but he got out, out of it and he got into construction work. And in the construction field at that time in the 1970s, um, he had to protest. He had to get a part of a coalition that um, that did not that 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 was fighting for the rights for blacks and Latinos to get construction work. And oh, so, really? yeah, he was part of a construction. Oh, I didn't know that black economic survival. And so, so he was doing that, and he he became the first civil rights leader in our family, Sherman Banks. Um, he was p- responsible for helping blacks get Google that. Google Sherman Banks. Sure, Google him up. Check that out. Google so, him out. So, so what wound up happening is he um he was he was he was working with um black economic survival or fight back as they would say because what happened was when you're in the construction field um and he got unionized shortly after when you're unionized you can still get fired early but because he was part of coalition. They couldn't fire him that early. So he was like a, a leader in that. And so meanwhile, Stanley, um, in 1971, you know, he gets to play with um, Eddie Cleanhead Vision back in 1971, right? And so um, he's he's deep into his craft, Stanley. Is. And I'm like five, six years old. But like in 1973, um, Pee Wee Ellis, the guy that wrote James Brown on Black and I'm Proud um, and Cold Sweat, um, he was doing auditions at Cafe Y, and we know that Cafe Y in Manhattan was owned by Richie Haven, right? And so that saxophonist, P.B. Ellis, you know, he's holding, holding audition. And Stanley makes the audition to perform and work with Esther Phillips. So our family can intertwine into music. Um, my brother Layton, who was just like slightly over me, he gets into church, and my mom does not like him getting involved in church because she did not like us going to church. She did not like it. And so um, you had that, and then Larry playing in bands. I think Lenny D said back in the day, there was, um, they, they had like a lot of band showcases. But with Rusty Taylor and Larry, they always had rivalries back in the day. So you had landscape that was DJ orientated. And then you had the band that was, um, that was more focused on music. And so, um, what winds up happening is in 1976, um, we start seeing a lot of musicians coming through because Stanley knows a lot of musicians and Larry knows a lot of musicians. So that's the first time I get to meet, um, Jocelyn Brown because Jocelyn Brown is tight with Stanley and, you know, she she's cool with my mom. She calls my mom. She talks to my mom and so forth. There's a disco group called, at that time in 1976, called Ecstasy, Passion, and Pain. And Barbara Roy was a singer. And so, you know, we're touching go and ask me. He went on tour as a bassist because Larry loved playing bass like Stanley, right? So he, go, he goes on tour, but not every bass player that plays on tour not every bass player that plays on tour gets to do the album or gets to do the recording. Stanley, with, after working with Esther Phillips, he um, is working with Stevie Wonder's percussionist, right? And through that percussionist, he gets up and he winds up working with George Benson from Water Brothers Records. And so Stanley records with George um, 
the Breeze album, which had songs like This Masquerade in 1976. And it wasn't the typical kind of jazz that George Benson was making, right? George Benson was like the face of jazz in the 80s, but, uh, you know, this first album was what really set him off with This Masquerade. Then you had, you know, Breeze by Jose Feliciano, um, uh, Affirmation. And so Stanley had won... Um, a Grammy Awards. I mean, not Stanley. George had won a Grammy Award for Record of the Year. And to post that in, I, I got to see Stanley at Carnegie Hall play live for the first time. Um, seeing him play all of those records, his mother and the family were completely proud. I and mean, you know, me and Sam Larry, we would brag, oh yeah, my brother, he plays for George Benson. You know, um, and then, you know, a year later, he this soundtrack for Muhammad Ali with George Benson on The Greatest Love of All. You know, he's doing an in-flight. You know, he's working. And, I, you know, when I when I go to Carnegie Hall, you know, I'm meeting Harvey Mason. You know, and, he, and Harvey Mason is playing, you know, with Stanley on an album. I'm thinking in a, um, in a, uh, um, a Mason jar and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, we were all moving in different lanes. Um, what wound up happening is me as a kid, I was being bused to school and I was bused to PS 105 and I didn't have the easiest childhood um, because New York at that time was territorial, 1973, early 70s. New York is very, very territorial. You know, you had, you know, to put it in plain terms, you had your good times, which is Esther and James and all of them. You had that kind of show in America. And then you had your Fonzie show, right? And so certain communities, didn't want you. Like, if you was Italian, you was black, they didn't want you to commute. If you was black and you was Italian, there was that whole marginalization, right? And so I had problems because I had to get into squats and fights with cats. So I had to get into fights to, to the point where, you know, um, you know, I, I knocked the kids' tooth out second grade, uh, I third grade, and I got left back in the fourth grade. By the time I got to the fourth grade, they said, hey, is he crazy? Maybe we need to put him in CRMD. What's going on with this kid right here? Now, my mother, you know, she would come and I would get them spankings because, you know, as you know, well, well, no, Willie, uh, 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 Lenny. And sometimes in some cases, you know, I think that the, the, the butt, butt whipping generation, you know, they worked out a little bit better than the timeout generation. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I don't think that timeout thing really works that well. I think one thing it was, it was, it was like, you know, you have some two kind of. So my mom, my mom was coming all the way to Park Slope from Farragut. I'm getting that butt whipped. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wait, 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 wait. So you agree with your mother's way of, of dealing with the with the problem, the ass whipping as a grown-up? I, I, girl, so I can't really, you know, I can't do that. If I had a, you know, I, went, I raised a boy, but there was ways to get around it. You know what I'm saying? And then at that time, my mother got, she got five boys. She ain't got no time to be keep on talking about what you need to do over and over and over again. She got to go upside that head. That's where, the, that's the school she came from, you know? So what wound up happening is um, my, my, my brother Larry, right? He's in Brooklyn College when I'm, while I'm doing this. And he works with a, um, he meets a, a woman named Hilda Richbow, right? And Hilda Richbow um, introduces him to a girl named Brenda. So this girl, Brenda, is also known as Shannon. Shannon that sang Let the Music Play and so forth, right? The one that birthed freestyle. 
And so Hilda, you know, she got with Larry because she was um, initially doing um, background with Luther Vandross, the showcases at the Essex Hotel on 59th Street. This was like 1976, 1977. And so the three of them performed at the World Trade Center for Sam Jacobs, who was a contractor, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in both of their musical activity, but scholastically, I suffered a little bit. And so what Stanley did um, was that he put me in the George Coldfield Karate School. Oh, let me go, George. Hang on, baby. Look at that guy. Grandmaster George Cofield. Right. So when I was in junior high school, you know, it was cool to be rebellious. It was cool not to go to school and, you know, indulge in behavior. I think, you know, it would embarrass the family. But he saw that and he decided, you know what, I need that discipline. And so he took me to the, to the karate school on Bergen Street. And my sensei, you know, George Cofield, he was the founder of Tong. Dojo, which was the first, he was one of the first people to introduce karate to America, one of the first black people to introduce karate to America. And, you know, George was a Hall of Fame, World Karate Award winning, you know, you know, guy that, that, that you know, he taught, he, taught, he taught the Shotokan style. And so in each class, you know, they had that philosophy, which, you know, it, it, it's like, it's not merely for self-defense. It's an art and a, and, a, and a sharp mental conditioning, you know, to have the ability to think quickly in a controlled, disciplined manner, you know? And so, you know, you, you, you don't feel challenged by your deepest fear, you know, or limitation. Because I needed that because not only was I getting it from, you know, Italian communities that didn't, probably didn't want, you know, Black people in their neighborhood, but I was getting it from my own. You know, you had to fight for yourself. If, if I if I went to summer camp and I was I was working as a summer school teacher and I was getting my summer check, if I let somebody steal my check, they, they wouldn't stop. You had to assert yourself, right? And so through karate, it was like a release. And then you know after that, I was able to like discover move music because my mom she was all my my boys are involved in music, and so she got me involved in. The, sh- the rips out of Streamline as they're playing drums. And she told um, the drum teacher at the time, James Doyle, stay hard on him. I want you to stay on him. So I developed um, music through playing the cymbals, learning the rum- uh, rudiments, mama daddies, the paradoodles. You know, I'm learning the skill of how to play drums. And so um, my, my brother Larry, you know, he's into different fields. And I start to follow him around. And That's so, you, um, you, at the same time, huh? is that you in the band pictures here? Was that? Um, no, that's that's faculty. That's 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 the time of the Riverside. You know, okay. but but it, it kind of gives you an explanation of what was really really going on. So at the same time, you know, I'm getting my my mental instruction and discipline, but I was also feeling spiritually challenged because my brother Larry. He had joined the Church of the Open Door, which was in the same block as where I lived. And, you know, I had gotten challenged because at that time, in the late 70s, the 5% Nation was strong in Farragut and Fort Greene projects, right? And so I made a decision to accept Jesus in my life because I would rather live my life believing in God and serving him and find out that I was right than believe did not believe in him and then not serve him and then find out I was wrong. 
So, you know, I, from that moment on, I believed in Jesus Christ. I, believe, I, I took the Lord as my Savior. And, you know, I'm not denying him or, you know, or any of that. And I, and I understand that I'm not perfect, but I accepted him. So was that, but before you go further, but was Larry at that point the reverend pastor of the church? Is that no, or, he was at, what he was, was he was the organist. He knew how to write songs and he was singing. So he, gotcha. knew, he knew how to play baseball at the church in the open door. He was, he became more of the organist and he began, he began his vocal skills. Okay. Right? So he was he was building up, and he was a great, amazing writer. He knew how to write songs on the spot. So here we go, 1980, right? And so, you know, um, Staley's having success. He's out the house now because George Benson puts out that big record, Give Me a Night, right? Yeah. And so Staley blows up. He's working with um, Shaka Khan. He's working with Aretha Franklin. He's working with Freddie Hubbard. I mean, Al Jarreau, David Sanborn, Eddie Jane. He's working with the, the transfer, the Manhattan transfer. He's working with the Temptation, Ashley Simpson. He's working hard. Working hard. You know, he's Ozzy Lee Brothers stylist. He's setting the bar high. My big brother's setting the bar real, real high. But Larry goes in his own direction, right? Because he um, he becomes, and I go with him. He becomes a studio bassist. And he gets used in various studios. So one of the experiments that he had was um, he was working with Mystic Merlin. And Mystic Merlin came out with a song called Just Can't Give You Up, Thrills in a Minute, Full Moon. He was working like with those kind of people, right? And so as a singer, he had, um, I think he replaced Freddie Jackson, who was a hot R&B um, singer later on, right? And so, you know, Mystic... Mystic Merlin was known for like incorporating magic acts during their show. And so what wound up happening was he, um, Mystic Merlin, they got a call to um, perform at Madison Square Garden with Michael Jackson. And um, what wound up happening is, is that it didn't go down because they didn't want any magic. So that fell apart. But the, the bass player of the group, his name was Clyde Bullard. And he introduces um, Larry to Tony Smith, who sang for Funkin' for Jamaica, right? So Tom Brown and Funkin' for Jamaica. So Tony Smith is also a studio singer, right? So now Larry, because mom, she got a handful. She's cooking. She's doing all of this. Mom's got a handful. And Larry starts bringing me to the studios where he's at, right? He was often at like... um, Hourglass Studio, right? And he worked with a, a, a drummer, I think Ron Freeman, who played with uh, Roy Ayers. You know, he worked, um, he, he was working in the same studio that Fonda Ray came out of. He did Quad Studios, 241 Center. Um, he worked at Sound Lab, um, the same place as D-Train, Wang Chong, you know, Lawrence Street, um, Chung King Studios, 241 Center Street. You know, he was doing all of that, you know? Um, and then he was playing as a session bass player for a lot of groups. I mean, he played on Futura for a song called Feeling Hot. Um, and he worked with Sir Coxon for Studio One Records on a reggae tip, on a Caribbean tip for Barris Hammond. So the thing we learned, I learned about studios is, you know, back that during that time was there was something called time suckers, right? You know, Lenny, you ever go to the studio and you work with an engineer and they be like, 
yeah, man, you want some coffee? And they just take their time and, you know, they going through the process. You mean they're walking in backwards instead of forwards? Everything's right, like, right, right. they work in it, you know, right? Because they know that it's coming out of company time. Yeah. You got to recoup that money that you lost in the studio. It's the games they playing, right? And a lot of times, a lot of artists that played on these instruments, they wasn't credited. They were just studio musicians. They didn't get credit. When your record came out, you know, like, like, like say, this is Loose Joints. To this day, I still don't know who the vocal. I know it's Loose Joints, but who's the vocalist? So those kind of questions, kind of like, okay, who's a singer on some of these songs? Who played the bass? Who played the drums? Who, you know, there was a lot of questions during that time. Yeah, and right. so I had gotten into like playing percussion and playing full scale drums. And now I graduate from junior high school and I go to FDR, right? So my brother, like Stanley and all of them, they, they can relate to what I would, I would go for at FDR because, you know, getting chased through the hood. And so at that time, Kenny Carpenter's name was big, right? Because mm-hmm. he's playing Bond International. He's playing Studio 54. He's done that. He's legend. And, and you still have this DJ movement you know, that, that's really, really strong. And what I wind up noticing is that the, band, the, the DJ movement starts replacing the band movement, right? So now you don't see bands in the streets anymore playing. Now you see DJs in the street playing, right? right. And so it's a, a big, big change, right? And so Larry, he starts making his more, more of a commitment writing and doing gospel for, for gospel. Meanwhile, I'm playing drums at FDR. And so me, Larry, um, and a guy that I met at FDR called Leon Atkinson, we record our first live album with uh, Willie Corbett, right, at the, the Holy Cross Church in Brooklyn. And so it's the first time that I think I'm going to be on the record. I'm hyped, getting ready to get on this record. Yeah, I'm getting my, I'm getting my props. I'm going to be like my brother Stanley, right? Nothing to do with it. The record never came out. I was bad, right? And so during that time, you know, in 83, 84, you know, Shannon's got her cheese blowing up, and then you got straight blowing up with Set It Off. Oh, yeah, big time. So musically, there's things there. And then I get more involved because I want to make more financial contributions, and I become a worker at um, Dr. White Community Center. And my job is to hire you, right? I'm, I'm trying to hire you to get a summer job, you know, come on in, be a student, so forth. And, um, you know, at that time, you know, that's, this is where we get to the crack, right? So what winds up happening is two things happen, right? Um, there was no drums at the Church of the Open Door. And so there was no way for me to expand on, you know, what I had on my, you know, playing the drums. And so what winds up happening is, is I go to another church, which is called the Greater Refuge Temple, the Hour of Truth, right? Which is in Harlem, 125th Street, um, with the great Bishop Bond. And I get saved, I get baptized. Um, and at that time, crack cocaine is is, is Hold raised. On. Hold on, let me ask you a question. Everybody yeah. understands this, non-religious. What does that mean when you say, I've been saved? Right, that means that... that that Jesus Christ, I gave my life over to him. That's what that means. That means that I've given my life over to the Lord, right? And so at that time, 
it was a really a beckoning call, especially during the crack era, because what happened was because I was working at Dr. White, you know, um, and we can say this is for the, for the welfare babies at that time that didn't have no structure. You know, for a lot of those kids that were my age, you know, the drug trade was a way out. Right, oh, so, definitely way out. So, so kids my age were seeing hustlers as role models. Right, there was a crack house in every building in Farragut. Right, young men they go out, sell out their community. They crew up. You know, they go to there's a there was a popular mall downtown Brooklyn called Albee Square Mall in downtown. They flashed the latest jewelry. You know, they got their street gear. They got their Dookie gold chain. You know, becomes like a, a similar hood status and what? mall. Don't forget. Hang on. Let me help you there. Let me help you. What cars were you seeing in the parking lot by the Farragut projects? Oh. What? Tell, tell hey. people how, what kind of Benz is, Rolls Royce. You see all the latest cars, right? And so, and so the, the, the Abbey Square Mall was like a mecca for hip-hop fashion, you know, and it was it was a place where gangsters would go and congregate, right? That's right. And so, you know, the dealers, they had an appeal for like the cash and the women. And so what, what did crack do? It, and I don't like to spend, spend any time on this too much, but we know that crack, crack created the biggest um, housing project, um, pregnancy boom, right? It destroyed the working class. It shattered families, right? And it had, it had people from rival dealers killing each other, right? The dealers from Farragut, would get, they would get their dope from Harlem, right? And then you see, like, um, lines of people waiting to get their stuff, right? And so the people that were legends at that time, DJs, um, people in my in my brother's choir, family, everybody fell, you know, prey to crack. And so at this time, I graduated out of FDR high school. And my dad makes a, you know, he makes a decision. My, my dad is making an executive decision, right? My dad never taught me about money in his life. Never, right? He says, I want you to be like me. I want you to be an accountant. I want, because that's what he did. He was a captain. All right, so on that note, wait, hang on. Let's give you have a glass of water. And I want to click on the newsletter. I want to, because it's going to get good now. 